John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. Join late night legend John Stewart and the best news team for today's biggest headlines, exclusive extended interviews, and more. Now this is a second term we can all get behind. Listen to The Daily Show Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, I'm John Krasinski, and I played Jim Halpert on The Office. Hello, everyone. Thanks for stopping by. Today, you know what today feels like? Well, it feels like the perfect day for a new episode of The Office Deep Dive. (laughs) Do you see what I did? I am your host, Brian Baumgartner, and I am beyond excited, giddy, in fact, to bring back my main man, John Krasinski, for the second half of our conversation today. And boy, are you in for a treat. Because this time, we go deep. Okay, we always go deep, but seriously, I made him blush. I made him cry. Well, he didn't quite cry, but he did go into details of the way he cries, which is all in, like everything else he does. I even got to, well, or I was forced to hear his sexy voice in my brain. And if I'm honest, I would be okay never hearing that again, but maybe you'll feel differently. Now, if you've been listening to this podcast since the very beginning, you've heard me talk about how The Office is a family a few times. Well, John really gets into why that's the case and why The Office is not just a family for the cast and crew who were there, but for you too. Yes, you, the person listening to this right now. So few shows have been able to cross that threshold where it really feels like you know the characters that you're watching on screen. And and not to toot our own horns, but I really think uh, with this show, we achieved that. And that's why no matter how many movies he directs or how successful 
he becomes, how many billboards he is on, John Krasinski will always be Jim Halpert, everyone's favorite goofy-haired prankster. So please join me in welcoming back my old friend and yours, John Krasinski. Bubble and squeak, I love it. Bubble and squeak, I know. Bubble and squeak, I cook it every morning Left over from the night before The Office was constructed in the opposite way than most comedies, or certainly television comedies, where typically the leads are the young lovers. Mm-hmm. And then you've got a crazy uncle right, or the right, crazy right. boss oh, that's like, interesting. that that is back in the corner is coming in to or, add light. Or, no. Oh. Um this show was the reverse. Yeah, no, it's totally which, true. which is I never thought of it like that. That's which really which was putting and specifically the moments in examining like why Jim and Pam, like why that relationship became so important to people mm-hmm. and so charged was people weren't watching a half hour of it. Right. They were just stealing a moment from the corner, right. which makes you like want to lean forward. Yeah. And the other thing was uh, there's an idea that when you generalize, it becomes more universal, right? Yep. Like this is generally who this guy is from this Midwestern town, but the amount of specificity and reality, both in those moments between Jim and Dwight and Jim and Pam, Mm -hmm. the opposite is true. That the more specific you get, Mm -hmm. that the characters become infinitely more real and therefore universal and relatable. Yeah. Uh, To me, that idea is, is interesting. No, I think it's, I think it's really true. And I, I think that's sort of the magic trick of the show is, and I don't, I don't know the specifics of why it's so huge now. I mean, it's mind blowing to me. A four-year-old came up to me at the airport and was like, it's my favorite show. And I was like, do you get any of it? And they were like, yeah. Like, it, totally universal, like you said. But I also think that the stakes were set up so wonderfully because that's real life, right? I think mm. when you're in love with someone, especially someone at work, you very much look forward to those interactions at work. But that means that when you go home and your home life with your friends or whatever else you're doing, you will not see that person. So you are sort of, I don't know, tantalized by the idea that like, when I get that moment, I'll savor it. And I think that's real life. And that's what we did in the show. I particularly am thinking right now about the relationship with Roy. You know what I mean? It's like a, it's like lighting a fuse that might blow six weeks from now, but it was a very specific fuse, right? So the first time you saw me and David together, people were like, oh, okay. So you just told me that this is a potentially explosive thing. And then we didn't go into it. You'd reference him a couple of times and it was very specific references. And she said that he brought me to the game and left me at the arena, like things like that, where you're just slowly leading the breadcrumbs back to the trigger. And then by the time he comes in and pushes me, you're so invested in that, not in a television way. I think in like a, like these people are my friends oh, right, my friend, as much as I love them together, is trying to go after a girl who's taken. That's real life stakes. 
rather than TV stakes. And I think that's what made it like the first time that we accidentally kissed at Dundee's and like, that's real life. Whereas a regular television show would have a big, huge kiss scene. Like they finally got together. And it was, I remember reading that script and being like, man, that is so smart. That have the audience be like, did they just kiss? And it's in, and not give them what they thought they want. It was so, because that's how I felt. I felt like, oh my God, I thought we were going to do some huge kiss scene. Right. And instead she just did it at Dundee's and you're like, oh my God. And of course, I, I would have stewed on that for months and been like, was that a Did thing? that count? Was she just drunk? Right. Like, rather than if it was a big kiss scene where I took her out back and like, you know, made some huge overture, you'd be like, oh, good. I'm being entertained by this moment, but I don't feel anything. I'm not connected. I don't know. If that's any of that so made smart. sense. No, that's so smart, I think. I, um, I think people see themselves in the show. And it's a combination, I would imagine, of every character. You know, I don't think you look at one character and you go like, oh, I'm Michael. <laughs> I hope you're not Michael. Right. But it, it's more like, oh, man, I have a coworker that loves cats. And I have a coworker that drives me insane. I, I don't know. Maybe that's it. And certainly people have bosses that are crazy. Right. Yeah. It's what you were talking about, I think, is so true. I had a conversation with Greg where... Traditional sitcoms, there's a rhythm. There's yeah. a rhythm to the joke. It's music. Set up a knockdown. It's, to it's totally on the beat. And I think that in the relationship between Jim and Pam, everything happened off of the beat. Right. Not at the time you expected, right? From No, it's your point. They were snatch moments. Way early. Like, right? Yeah, like, yeah. in terms of, like, the progression. But then also, what Greg talked about a little bit was once it got to a certain point, that he was like, well, we need to get them together. Like, I'm not going to create artificial impediments that make everybody go like, yep. oh, come on. Right. Because I think he had brought this audience in to a very seemingly realistic relationship. So if you started doing weird things that felt fake, then people wouldn't relate to it anymore. I'm saying like, I love, I, I can admit on this podcast, I was never like a, a Casanova. I wasn't really great with dating and i think really? and i think that's what's so great about the show is how do you go about that like how do you start a relationship with someone who's already with someone it's a great place to start amazing and then just you know slowly you know i remember also how bold it was that when you thought you would do something you know like propose to her he would write an entire episode where you're like, oh man, and at the end, this is going to be the proposal. Because again, in TV, you know that like the big scenes are coming and he wouldn't do it. And then when I did propose, I loved that talking head where I was like, I've been planning on this forever. Like, I love that, you know? Um, I, I've said to people that nothing shut down production like an important Jim and Pam moment. Like oh. when there were moments between oh, you mean the two like of you actually shut it down. No, I mean like shut it down. <laughs> right, right. Like <laughs> like yeah, like you're blushing right now, yeah. but it's I mean like casino night. Yeah. And not that. and not just one two different moments in casino night because the relationship was so important to the two of you and getting it right. Totally. I remember those two moments very well. I remember the parking lot. Yeah, it's funny now that you say that. Yeah. Which must have been frustrating for you. Like, oh, oh God. you'd be like, <sighs> "Oh, please." 
just get me out of here before they film this or it's going to be seven hours. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we were in there that seven hours. But again, I had never experienced anything else. So that was weird for me. It was, I remember like there was an energy around those moments. And I remember, I remember so many different things, but I remember that parking lot scene. I remember not knowing where Matt was. Yes. And Ken wouldn't tell me. And he was like, don't worry about it. Just do the scene or whatever. You know, and I thought that was cool. And then certainly I remember the, like the big moment, the big kiss that was shut down. Like that was, nobody was on set. Nobody was around the craft service table. And, but I, I didn't know that was happening. So I walked on, you know, ready to joke with folks and they were like, not wanting to make eye contact with me. And I was like, what happened? Right. I feel like I said something to you. Like, yeah, what's I, going on? I know. I kind of remember that too. And then I it really made did. me more nervous because then they were like, all right, now maybe you should go out the door and whenever you're ready, come in. And I was like, what's happening? Is no one going to call action? And they're like, no, man. Well, the, do you remember that night? I, I remember that night. I remember. Because you were so frustrated, happening. you were still there. No, I just, I remember it being so big. I think the thing that I am most proud of artistically is not blowing your top in that moment <laughs> in the show, in the show was every single shot where the camera was positioned. Just the discussion about are the cameras in the room? Are the characters aware the cameras in the room? Right. How does that change behavior right. based on the fact that the cameras right. are in the room right. or if they think that they're alone and I think that at that moment, specifically at the end of Casino Night, you see the slats in the blinds and yeah, them yeah, shooting yeah. and catching you guys, that there's such an intimacy. You know, yeah, it's but like, like Randall and Matt were two of my favorite people on earth, and I couldn't see them. And like, I don't even think I got to see the set before I went out. You know what I mean? Like, it was all so weird. And I'm sure for a better actor you'd think like oh that's what you need right and so i i was like oh, i am a terrible actor because i don't know i'm nervous and maybe that was the intention but i was like i don't even know i remember oh, randall wasn't anywhere and usually i was like what are we doing like what 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 how where do you want me to be and whatever and it was really weird i was so freaked out and i remember i was on set for a while before jenna got on too because jenna was taking her moment which is fine but again i was so not knowing of that world that i didn't know that i could take 30 minutes in my trailer to prepare mentally i was like mentally what's happening and then i got so much more scared <laughs> right. and i was like you know then you start to think like oh god i didn't do my homework and she's doing her homework right were you on board with the trajectory of jim and pam's relationship like just in terms of the timing did you have concerns about it happening too soon no it sounds like a, a hallmark version of greg but I truly and Greg, I trusted. I I could tell that he had a beat on it. He was always so nice to involve Jenna and I, I remember that he would tell you kind of when things were going to happen. And he would remind you in scenes, you know, don't worry, this isn't the moment that's going to lead to this. That'll happen later. Like he, he had it all tracked out. Also, we were what in season five or six by the time that I was in that motel with that other girl and stuff like that. And that's the only time I remember putting whatever, put my foot down, not really, but I remember I got, that was the only time I was very much against because he was saying, you're going to actually make out with her in this scene. And that I said, was the episode I directed. Yes, that's right. Yes. With the bed bugs. And I don't remember, it may've been an earlier version about you guys making out but we, i remember I, I that was the only time we had like a it was like a bad negative moment but i remember being in a room and it was like 
I, I remember finding myself kind of saying things that I never thought I'd say before. Like, I'm not going to shoot it. Yeah, I was and there. I remember Paul Lieberstein was in the room. He was like, no, you, you will do it. Not in an aggressive way, but it was like he saw the benefit of doing it. And I remember saying to Greg, there is a threshold with which you can push our audience. They are so dedicated. We have shown such great respect to them. There's a level of messing with them that you've done, like in a great way. I mean, like you've messed with them by the whole kiss happening too early. And I think there's a moment where if you push them too far, they'll never come back. And I think that if you show Jim to be cheating, they'll never come back. Yeah. And I... I what did you think? My, That's right. Well, you, you directed. What, did, what was your feeling? Well, on? my recollection... Well... It was never that you were going to make out, but it was about oh, there was. what there was, was the early, line. Yeah. What was the line? How far can we go? I was supposed to kiss her in that bathroom. I remember yeah. that's what they were pitching. And I was like, I, I don't know that that's going to go well for us. Yeah. But even just you being in a room with her, the, you know, how would you behave even if you didn't think the cameras were there because the cameras were shooting from outside and they weren't in the room. Right. Except when Dwight came in. Um, anyway, I, the whole point is the passion for which you fought and Jenna fought and Greg, like that everybody was collaboratively. Oh, totally. That's what I mean. It wasn't a negative fight. It was a big conversation because again, it was so important to everybody. Yeah. But also I had trusted Greg up to that point and it was really hard for me to say, I think we're actually making the wrong decision. Right. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer, Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Claim comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course... We'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV True Crime Podcast, to live and die in LA. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent 
telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith. When I'm not at my day job, first tape, you can find me in my studio hosting the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, at the very least, as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and politics. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions on those nauseating cowboy fans, the chaos in Washington, D.C., and trending topics on social media, as well as my straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. And I occasionally give out love advice. Yes, it's true. If you want to know my true feelings about something, I'll give it to you straight. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. So, Steve. Well, I'm going to start with this. When you found out that Steve was leaving. Oh, yeah. What did you think was the greater loss, Michael or Steve? Jesus. It's like a existential crack right there in the, in the universe. <laughs> yeah, my brain literally just melted. Oh, my God. I mean, it's weird, right? I think there might be one of those esoteric kind of actory bogus things that happened, which is we kind of started blending ourselves and our characters because we spent so much time together. And Steve and I had a really wonderful relationship. We started because we were both from Boston and we really had a great friendship. And even though we didn't hang out all that much, I felt very deeply connected to him and he was always so nice. So I think that I think I have to be honest and say it was losing Steve because as much as he was so good on the show, his presence on the set was fantastic. I mean, he was, he was as professional as it gets. He was your cleanup hitter, just crushed everything that he was thrown. And so I think I'm saying, I think what I'm getting at is in that moment, it felt like the end of an era. It felt like the, the end of something. More than even losing Steve or losing Michael, it felt like the end of our show in a way or that evolution of our show. It's like when you graduate college, your life isn't over, but that version of your life will never come back. You'll never have your college years again or your high school years again. Um, that's what it felt like. It felt like we were graduating college that day. I'm trying to figure it out in real time why I cried so hard when we did that scene. I also remember him crying, and I was not expecting that. 
I thought that he was so good at comedy that he was able to be like, it's just a scene, then we'll cry after or not or whatever. And the energy in that room was so thick and palpable that when they called action or go ahead, I remember Steve teared up right away. And that was so unlike him. Not that he was an emotionless, but it was like, it was so unlike him to let real life bleed into the moment, right? I think I, think I actually remember the actual number was 17 takes of not even speaking, just just dribbling crying for me. It's, I mean, you talked about it. You were waiting tables. Mm-hmm. I was doing theater for, you know, Super some, sometimes <laughs> 17 people, you know, or whatever. Like everybody, we all grew up together. Oh, yeah. And there was like Greg as like our onset dad, but like Steve as like. The greatest brother you could have. Yeah. Yeah. It was like the steady brother, you know, whether it's like John Steinbeck or. <laughs> Arthur Miller, like there was always like a steady brother and we were all the crazy people and he was always really steady. Yeah, no, but I mean, I was 23 years old when we started shooting season one. And I look back and I'm like, I basically graduated college, had two and a half years. Like I was shot out of a literal cannon because my, my life wasn't real life. I was living in a fantasy camp. Because every day I was going to work on something I loved and something that was edgy and fun and I would have watched it anyway. But like you said, we were also intermingling in a way that was such perfection. I've never been on a job since where every single human being from crew member to, you know, actor uh, was so in tune and such a family. I always felt bad for the guest actors. Did you feel that? Yes. When you had to pop in for one episode, oh man, I thought that must be awful because here I am being like, Right, who are you picking up in the second round of fantasy? And like, they're like, no, this is a big show. And I'm like, it's not, it's fine. I mean, right. some of your M&Ms are like just goofing off and then like throwing things at each other in the middle of scenes. And people were probably like, dude, oh, this is yes. my big break. We were trying yes. to throw stuff at each other. Yes, throwing when the, the camera football. Was, yes. When the camera wasn't on us, we were throwing a football in the middle. And I remember there were a couple of people who were like. Did not like the football throwing. Yeah, stop, you <laughs> jackasses. And I was like, what's the big deal? And yeah, like Amy Adams, I thought, did the best job of it. She came in and somehow felt like she was always on the show. Yeah. And remember, she wasn't the original purse girl. Yes. They had cast well, yes. someone else. Yes. And then all of a sudden, Amy showed up. And I was like, oh, there's been a recast. And she was not nervous, not scared, came in and was like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not taking this too seriously either. I'm just super good at my job. And then crushed. It was one of the best storylines we've ever had. I love that storyline because I loved how she ended her character where she was understanding of how much I loved Pam. And you're like, Bleh. that was also Rob Riggle, right? That was Riggle's yeah. booze cruise. Yeah. Riggle. God, one of the funniest human beings I've ever met in my life. Do you remember anything about that? Speaking of booze cruise, the 27 seconds of silence, that was a big deal for yes. the fans. I remember. I remember. Was there a discussion remember, when you were yeah, shooting? Yeah, I remember I felt it was a big deal when someone gave me the number of 27 seconds. Because if someone counted, it surely wasn't us. And so it had aired and someone timed it, which meant that it was a big enough deal to time it rather than like, remember how silent they were? I remember that. I also remember, do you remember we had shot till like the wee hours and the sun was cracking and we drove back on a boat and it, it conked out? It conked out. You, yeah. 
And we were in pitch black water, like terrifying, scary. Shark infested. Shark infested water. And we were just kind of crapped out on a tiny boat. And we were all exhausted. And the other boat got there just in time. They had left. And we were like, "Mm, this is going to be a while. I remember that was terrifying. Yeah. I remember Phyllis was on our boat. Yep. It was you, Phyllis. It wasn't Quapis. He got off on the, the good one. Was it Angela? I think Angela was there. Anyway, was that season two? two? Well, and that was the episode. As we're filming, you know, 7 p.m. to 7 a.m., mm-hmm. I wake up from like sleeping all during the day and have like 74 messages from my agent saying, The office wants to make you a series regular. Where are you? I remember that. I remember being in the parking lot before we went to the boat, and you were very nice to say, I want to talk to you about this and get your take on it. And we talked a lot about it. Yeah. And you yeah. took none of my advice. No, none of it. <laughs> um, did you think the show could go forward when Steve left? I knew the show could go forward. I didn't know what the plan was. I couldn't see through the trees. Got it. Um, but again, that's where I really trusted Greg. I remember when they came to us for season nine, I had a very honest conversation with Greg. He called me about season nine and said, what do you think? And I said, you have to end the show. I was like, I don't want to negotiate because we, none of us had contracts. And so I was like, this isn't about a negotiation. You have to end the show before they end it for us. Cause I was like, it's coming to an end regardless. You don't want to be the one that like, and he, by the way, it, it wasn't, I wasn't telling him anything he didn't know. I just felt with the landscape of what other shows were on and whatever that like, and again, keep in mind, we were not even as popular then as we are now. It's like, I remember that feeling of like, we don't want to be taken out back. Right. <laughs> I think. Don't I, go out behind the shed. Yeah, I don't want to see behind the shed. Avoid the woodshed, for <laughs> sure. That is a lesson you everyone should abide by. Um, what did you think? Did you want to, did you think we should have kept going? I remember being conflicted, but ultimately I felt like that was the right decision. And I mean conflicted just that. You um, didn't want it to end. Well, I yeah. I didn't want it to end. That it, that it could have. Well, I think what was inevitable was, and I just call it the ER syndrome. Like, I think the writing was there that people were going to begin to leave. And so it's like, oh, okay, are we going to ER this? And are we going 20? To me, there was sort of like, are we going to stop at nine or are we going 20? It totally could have gone 20 because everybody would have slowly cycled out and we just kept the reality of it. My question is, would people have wanted to see that? Not, Not that people are leaving, but that they would be like, I am now aware of the fact this is a TV show. Right. And we ended it before you technically, you gave them that respect of saying, you guys have been so good to us. Yes. We don't want to be taken out back behind the shed. Behind the woodshed. No, I think so. Here's what I know that I believe. That that story, like the idea that this documentary is actually going to air and these characters are right. going to watch it. Right. That had to happen right then. Mm-hmm. Or that never happens, right. I think. That's that's Because you can't do that after 20 years when you're on your and third cast. And then be like, where, where's this doc? Your third cast. I think that's, that's really true. Um, finale comes. I mean, you mentioned that you, 
you felt like we needed to end and you were clear with Greg season nine, once the finale finally comes, are you prepared for it? No, no, but I, I don't know. I might have an issue that I need to look into, which is like, I, I, I think I try to disengage from things and then they kind of catch up to me later. So while we were shooting, I was very disengaged to the fact that it, that also meant that it was ending, that we had called our shot, which I loved in theory, but I didn't really let my brain be like, oh my God, only two weeks left, only two episodes left, only two scenes left, only, you know, whatever. And I think a big thing that helped was when we went to Scranton. I think that getting together and having some version of a life experience that felt like we were memorializing it helped because I don't know if I would have been good having the finale just come out. What do you do? Do, do I like call you and be like, so what, what did you think about last <laughs> night's episode? You know what I mean? Like there, I didn't know what to do. So I think that really helped when we went to Scranton. That felt really, um, that was a really special experience for me. Right. I want to show you something. Is it me behind the bar? I don't, why, why would you ruin something when I'm, <laughs> God, I'm trying to like. I know you took a picture of me behind the bar because I got paranoid about it. Um, oh, God. My favorite picture of me and you and Jenna. Behind the bar. Behind the is. bar in Scranton. That was so much fun and nothing that I would have thought I would be doing. But I remember you had told me you had done this before. And then you told me how awesome it was and how amazing all the people were. Unlike anything else I've been a part of, the fans of The Office had this incredible warmth. I don't know that I ever would have done that if the love for the show didn't always feel so warm. It never felt fanatical. Everybody in that bar felt like they respected the fact that they got to have this moment where we were all celebrating the show together. Cast and fans alike were all together. Felt so organic. Rather than like a PR stunt where like, and if you come down at seven, like I loved, I remember the decision to get behind the bar. There was only like 50, 60 people. And then by the end, there were like 500. Or maybe <laughs> right. I'm not remembering. You right? know, you're, yeah. I remember even Steve stuck around for the end. Yeah. And he kept saying like, dude, look at this. Like, imagine being at home right now and being told like, dude, you should probably come because Denzel Washington is bartending. Like I would, if I was a kid in high school, I would be like, what? Right. You know what I mean? And the fact that they were like, dude, the cast from the office is bartending right now. And Steve got back there, didn't he? Yeah. He sure did. Yeah. I remember that being just so special. I remember they were like, they're going to be in a parade and we're going to have the top down. I was like, top down? Like what's happening? And then <laughs> Jenna and I got into a car yeah. with the top down like, like straight a, like a convertible yeah and drove up to the starting area and we saw some people like a lot of excited people and then we made that bend we took a left down some main street and it was like thousands of thousands people. of people i thought it was going to be the town of scranton came out and thought it was cool that you shot in their town it was people who had driven or flown like people traveled to be at that moment. And that I think was so moving to me. I was like, I knew our show was successful, but again, I always was moved by the success of the interpersonal connection that people had, that it wasn't fandom for the successful show. It was 
the feeling of connectivity that we we're all part of this show. And so I guess I, that was even that late in the game, it was still not clear to me how big our show was in that level. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, to me, what did I you steal? Thing, what did you take from the, from the set? What did you take on the last day? Um, I got a story. I bet. Jar of M&Ms. Smart. There you go. Jar That's of M&Ms one. and the name plate. Mm-hmm. Jar of M&Ms. Took home, put it on my desk. Awesome. Six months pass, a year passes, and I look and I realize that the M&Ms were going down. I'm like, hmm, that's odd. I'm, I'm definitely not eating them. I know how old they are. Nobody in my house, only solution I came up with was that my house cleaner every week was coming in, walking into my office, cleaning my desk, and grabbing a handful sure, of M&M's. that looks like drunk. a communal pot. It looks like something that she could do. Yeah. So I realized I potentially was poisoning her. Yeah. So I took them. I th- panicked. I threw them away. So I have the jar still. There are no M&M's in it. You should have put, put that on a shelf or something because you'd want the M&M's from the set, right? Also, it's a great science experiment. M&M's lasting for 100 years is probably something we should look into. We probably should. Yeah. But no, I, I was like, I'm, I'm poisoning her. I have to throw them away. Yeah. Because uh, what? The, 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 the only solution is to say to her, I know you're stealing M&M's from me. Yeah, yeah. By the way, you're poisoning yourself. By the way, what if it wasn't her and you're just a horrible person that accused her? What if she's like, actually, oh, so it's what, a, what would it's you a do? a thief that broke into my house. Maybe. I'm just saying it seems like you're leading the witness there and I don't like it. I'm just saying, what if you asked her and she goes, oh, I'm allergic to chocolate. And then you're like, <gasps> gum, gum. And then the law and order starts for the M&Ms. Thanks for asking me what I took. Um, <laughs> what did you take from the set? Well, it's funny. I'm only thinking about it now. I think it's the only time I ever lied to Greg. So... Well, you remember the last moment, right? That was vicious. That was vicious. Yes. That was hard. That's I, what nobody you said. saw it. Oh boy. God. There you go. What was hard? Um that Greg, unbeknownst to us, knew what the last shot of the day would be, the last shot ever of the show, but we didn't know. We were all goofing off and we were leaving the office, which was very poetic. And of course he's smart enough to have planned that. And we were like laughing and having a great time. And then we came back in for a reset and he was standing there weird in the middle of the room. And he was like, that was the last take of the office. And I was like, I mean, like a a bus hit me. It was so intense, wasn't it? Yes. Man. And I was like amazing and brilliant, but also how dare you? I think I bent over like I was going to puke. I cried very hard. Did you cry? You were like a stoic crier, like a like a Gary Cooper kind of cry. Whereas yeah, I was, it, it, yeah, my I cry like I laugh. I just, it's, it sounds like just way too much. It's just way too much. But anyway, so I remember that moment and then everybody was going back to their trailers and stuff to change, to go to the, the warehouse to do like a big presentation of a gift or something, right? And as Jim, I didn't have like a ton of stuff. Right, on your desk. Yeah, and like I took the nameplate for sure, but I was like, I want something that is, undeniably from our set and so i remember like i think i lied to you like you were like so where what time because remember we went right to the party yeah and i super shadily ran back in the five minutes that everybody was gone and stole the dunder mifflin sign that we always used to walk by and do the talking heads and get this so then i was like i'm a little ashamed that i didn't tell anybody but i really wanted it 
And I was like, you know, I'll look back on this and it'll be like, you know, a bad high school kid decision. So I get to the party and I was like, Greg, what did you take? And he goes, oh, I'm really bummed. Someone took the Dunder Mifflin sign. That's what I wanted. And he goes, do you know who took it? And I went, no. And I legit to his face was like, no, that is terrible. Who took it? I was like, if you want it, that should be yours. And he was like, right? And I was like, well, good news is you got tons of other stuff. And remember he was talking about like, we were going to like donate the set to the Smithsonian or something. He had that plan. Yeah. So I was like, he has plenty. But then the longer I thought about it, I was like, you lied to your TV, dad. Do you have it on your wall now? Oh, yeah. It's in my office. Yeah. I got it framed. Like, it looks great. Oh, well, good for you. By the way, that night, I hit a speed bump and the eye in Dunder Mifflin flew off. And I almost, oh, I almost lost my mind. And then Phil Shea emailed him like a year and a half later. And I was like, bro, that's I won't go back. And I don't want to, you know, kind of like, I don't want to be the one to put it up because it's like you being the one to add paint to a famous painting. So right. he was like, I'm going to send you an eye, like the same type of foam and everything. I'll just send it to you. And I was like, great. And he sent it to me. That's amazing. And then later he sent me the Adventures of Jimmy Halpert comic, right. my actual bag. I thought you were going to say the bag is what you took. I when did. I think of you, yeah. I'm talking like five years later, I asked for it and he sent it. I don't know how he knew where that was, but it was the comic. It was my Dundee. And then my bag. And then maybe my watch. I think I had a watch that he put in there. Anyway, that's all I have now. That was the greatest decision props-wise that I ever made on that show was not asking for a watch early on. So I'm not having to do that prop Just exchange at the begin, beginning oh, yeah, and end. Good for you. It's like learning not to eat on camera. Yeah. That's, a, that's Again, you're trained. You're a trained actor. I don't know about that. I just had to learn it the hard way. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature. And of course, we'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. 
all these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith. When I'm not at my day job, first tape, you can find me in my studio hosting the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, at the very least, as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and politics. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions on those nauseating cowboy fans, the chaos in Washington, D.C., and trending topics on social media, as well as my straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. And I occasionally give out love advice. Yes, it's true. If you want to know my true feelings about something, I'll give it to you straight. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. You obviously wildly successful. When people approach you now, what percentage of it is about the office? Oh, large majority. Again, I think it's the difference between fans who feel like they're a part of something and fans who have watched something. I think there's very few things that I watched when I was a kid that I felt so connected to. It was more like, oh, I like the movie E.T., but there were very few things that I felt like if I ever saw that person, we shared a life moment together. Had right. I ever met Chris Farley, I would have said that because I watched Tommy Boy yes. so many times that he didn't know he was my best friend, but he was my best friend. So I think that thing is like I shared so much of my life with that show. That's why I think that people, you know, people have seen other things, which is great. Certainly recently, like I think Quiet Place and Jack Ryan, people are coming up a lot more, but I, I think our fans see me and instead of going up to an actor to get a picture or something, they're actually seeing a friend of theirs is my point. Yeah. My long meandering point is no one looks at Jack Ryan and is like, oh my God, my buddy Jack Ryan. Oh my God, you're an actor. I didn't realize. Right. They do think that with Jim. Yes. And I've had the, my favorite experiences with fans is when they think we've gone to school together yes. or something. That's my favorite. Yeah. Like I, I had one where a woman said, we know each other. And I said, do we? And she goes, we went to school together. And I was like, I don't, I don't think we did. And she went, yes, we did. And it was like that thing of like, why am I being awkward about it? And I went, where did you go to school? And she said, some school. And I went, I did not go to that school. And she went, yes, you did. <laughs> and like, I was like, okay. And then I left and I could see that either 
someone else. Yeah, someone else something. had been like, you don't know that person. You just <laughs> thought that. It was at the airport bookshop. And then through the window, you saw them being like, in silence, being like, oh, no, oh, God. It was, it's great. But I think that that's such a credit to the show that you don't just like the show. You actually think you know those people. Yes. Because I, I um, by the way, I'm not necessarily comparing you to Ted Danson oh, in exactly the it. same way. No, but I just mean like Ted Danson was doing a lot of stuff and immediately after Cheers but there was something about Cheers. Sam alone. That everything else, not even that other things wouldn't have been as good or better, but Cheers was what I shared. Yeah, of. because there was a purity to that experience that you had watching. Same with me. I mean, I was I grew up in Boston. Like Cheers was a form of, <laughs> of like television religion or something. Yeah, I, I, I will take a comparison to Ted Danson anytime. Mm, then I won't do that again. Oh, damn it. Here, put on these earphones. I want you to hear something. I'm playing something for everybody. Oh, boy. Um, we should have had these on the whole time. I would have, I would have changed my voice. For the whole thing. Play. Um, don't ever, ever, when I have earphones <laughs> on and I have your tone right in my ear, don't talk low like that. When my voice slips around. Nope. I just sort of slips around. Mm -mm, I don't like oh, that in my yeah. ear. I don't like your voice slipping around in my ear. <laughs> um, will you play clip six for me? Clip six. I thought it was weird when you picked us to make a documentary. But all in all, I think an ordinary paper company like Dunder Mifflin was a great subject for a documentary. There's a lot of beauty in ordinary things. Isn't that kind of the point? So Greg wrote that clearly for him. That was the point. Mm -hmm. What did you think the point was? The point of what? Shooting the show? The show. Yeah. Sorry. I, my brain just exploded again. Um, I think that that is, the, is so beautiful, that writing. And I would only suspect that it came from someone who created the show. Because someone who creates the show and doesn't just act on the show would have to have in their head a beginning, middle, and end. And you're shooting for something. And I, I love that that's what he was shooting for. What are you most thankful for? Oh, my God, everything. I mean, are you asking me as a person? Yeah. Well, I mean, without sounding hyperbolic, it's, it is my everything. I mean, that show changed my entire life. I was 23 when it started, so I hadn't even really formed an identity of who I was. And so that show not only from a career perspective where I've had more opportunity than I ever would have dreamt of having for one day, I have for an entire lifetime, is all due to that show. I never would be doing any other thing that you've seen me do, writing, directing, acting, and something else, if it wasn't for that show. But as a person, I think it sort of gave me this very quintessential building block that I got to stand on to build the rest of my life. Yeah. You're about to say that's all a crack of shit. No. What, what, what would you say? Well, I think it's very similar. I think I was processing what you were saying that because of the people who were working on it, not just the actors, but the writers who are mm. like all showrunners now from the early season, you in, know, in, in Mike Shore. Yeah, like extremely and, successful, fun, good shows. It's, but also our crew, like you said, like, I, you know, again, in a very probably lame, cliche, Hallmark way, like, 
I don't know that as a person I would be able to have the luxury, forget, you know, success or finance or anything. It's the luxury of being who I wanted to be. I didn't know who I wanted to be. And because of such a warm environment where if everyone had a color, people were splashing their experience and their colors all over me, I got exposed to everything I wanted to be and then got to choose to move forward with my life in a way that I not only didn't know existed, but that I could sustain, like that you could, you could do fantastic, fun stuff every day for 10 years of your life. And genuinely, I've been asked, I'm sure you get asked all the time, what year were you guys all over it? Like, when were you guys like, ugh, we're over it? And I genuinely am trying not to look back with revisionist history. I don't remember one moment where I was like, ugh, such a job. This is such a, such mm -hmm. a. Yeah. Would you do a reunion? I'm asking the questions. What are you, what are you doing? I don't know. I just feel like we're. I don't know. You picked up a pencil. You're like doodling. No, I just wanted, talk. I was thinking about writing some questions down for you. And then I started doodling by oh. accident. Um, what was your question? Would you want to do a reunion or a, or a show? Like a, a reunion show? Right. Yeah. I, I don't know that you want to be on a reboot, right? I think that, I think with the right idea. Because clearly the show is bigger now than it was. Sure. It was and that's on. all great. That's again, that's the, that's the uh, business side of it. I think that for me, it's really simply down to, wouldn't that be fun? Like just throw an episode out there, almost like they did the Christmas specials for the British one. What I like about the idea is that it doesn't have to be better or worse than any of the episodes we've ever done. It would actually be cool to just tell a story. Just like no stakes. Yeah. Um, thanks, bud. You're welcome. Is it over? Yeah. I mean, do you have anything else you want to say? <laughs> I mean, I feel like we covered a lot of topics. Did we? We covered a lot of ground. I don't know what I said. Um, John, I love you so much. Love you. And I appreciate you coming and talking oh to God, me. This is great. But also, it's just so good to see you again. So good to see you. I feel like I just went to a therapy session. <laughs> You did. You did great. Which Don't cut yourself out of this. You, oh, <laughs> you, oh, you'll get my bill. Um, we still have headphones on. Which allows me to do this. <laughs> I don't want slip you. Slip around. I don't want you slipping. I don't want you slipping around <laughs> in my brain or ear. Um, are we done? Can I please get him the hell out of here? <laughs> All right. Oh. All right, guys. Dude, thank you. You're welcome, dude. Thank you. John, why do you always have to ruin everything? Just the slippering. I'm just kidding. That was incredible. Thank you so much for coming on the show. And to all of my listeners, thank you for making us a part of your day. Well, we'll be back soon with another tantalizing conversation, big word, and a very big announcement. Ooh, what could it be? But until then, make sure to leave us a review and just, you know, have an amazing week for me. We'll see you then.
The Office Deep Dive is hosted and executive produced by me, Brian Baumgartner, alongside our executive producer, Ling Lee. Our senior producer is Tessa Kramer. Our producers for this episode are Liz Hayes, Emily Carr, and Diego Tapia. My main man in the booth is Alec Moore. Our theme song, Bubble and Squeak, performed by my great friend Creed Bratton. And the episode was mixed by Seth Olansky. John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. Join late night legend John Stewart and the best news team for today's biggest headlines, exclusive extended interviews, and more. Now this is a second term we can all get behind. Listen to The Daily Show Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie. Because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to More Than a Movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.